0: listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. If you haven't already gotten one of these, uh, every week I try to provide one of these little green sheets, which has got the scripture references that we go over. And I tried something new last week. The ones that are in boldface are the ones that we are going—I'm going to actually ask you to turn to. So um, Ezekiel might be a hard one, so you can turn there now um, and be prepared for that. But we're in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7— Uh, And what we said last week is that this big, this chapter of chapter two is really a before and after uh, chapter uh, of who we were before we came to Christ and who we are now. It's filled with what we said uh, past tense uh, verbs and present tense verbs. It's all about the spiritual transformation that has taken place uh, in us when we become in Christ Uh, Last week we mainly focused on the before, uh, and this week we're going to focus on both the before and the after. So uh, let me read this passage. This is the very word of God, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, "...among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." But God, being rich in mercy... Uh, we cannot comprehend this unless the Holy Spirit is here illuminating us. And so let's look for his guidance. Father, we thank and praise you for your Spirit uh, who guides us into all truth. Holy Spirit, we just pray right now that you would work in this church. I know that there are a ton of distractions. I know that the enemy is here uh, seeking uh, to just confuse and to distract. And so We just pray we know that greater is he that is in us than he is in the world and so we just pray that you would shut him down right now we pray that those of us who are in christ who know you that we would be encouraged that we would be reminded of the amazing amazing transformation that's taken uh place in our lives and that we would respond accordingly and i do pray oh holy spirit i pray uh, that if there's anyone here who does not know you who has not given their life to you uh, that remains dead in their sins Lord that you would bring them to life and we just pray this that Jesus Christ would be magnified uh, in this church in this community on this island in this world and we just pray this in his name amen today is the first Sunday in uh, February Uh, it was exactly four years ago today that I had finished uh, preaching went to my office and realized that I had uh, missed a call from my cousin, uh, who was living in Michigan at the time. And so I called her back, and she said, hey, your mom was unresponsive this morning. And so they took her to the hospital. And so I uh, FaceTimed my mom in the hospital, and she was with the doctor. And at that point, she was diagnosed with a very, very aggressive cancer, Um, and it took her life within three months. My mom, uh, I had a great relationship with my mom, especially when I got out of my teen years um, in my early 20s. My mom was the first one that I would go to all the time. I would call her whenever anything significant would happen in my life. Uh, When I got accepted into pharmacy school, My mom was the first one uh, that I called and said, hey, I got in. When I graduated, um, she was the first one that I called. When I got licensed as a pharmacist, she was the first one that I called. When I moved out of Michigan and uh, got accepted into seminary, my mom was the first one that I called and said, I got in. When I graduated, she was the first one that I called. And when I became ordained, uh, she was the first one that I called called her for all of the great things that happened in my life. When I got called by this church to be uh, the pastor here uh, in October of 2014, I called my mom and said, guess what? And she was excited for me. And then a couple of years later, I called her and said, man, it's really hard being a pastor. I don't know if I like this, you know. But she was the one that I shared everything with. As she was dying, I had many conversations with her and I knew that she did not want to die. She loved Jesus, but she wanted, she didn't want to die. But there was nothing, absolutely nothing we could do about that. There was nothing that she could do about it. And when she finally did pass, when the Lord took her, there was nothing we could do. Because death is death. Death is the absence of all life. There are certain telltale signs of death, right? If you're looking at a tree or a plant, you know that whereas once it was growing and green, now it is no longer growing. It becomes brown and it withers and passes away. As far as the human body is concerned, uh, there are certain telltale signs as well. All cell function ceases. All organ function ceases. The cells in the very early stages start to eat themselves. And then I will spare you the rest of the gory details of the decaying process. The end result is that all that remains is bones. And those bones become drier and drier and sometimes they even turn to powder. By that time... Returning to life is obviously an impossibility. The question is, well, what does this have to do with our text today? And I would say it has everything to do with our text. In our text, uh, Paul says that we were dead. And as we mentioned last week, he, he didn't say you were really, really sick or you were really, really ignorant. He said you were dead And even though he's spiritually speaking this deadness is no less serious and no less irreversible i want you to turn to the old testament book of ezekiel chapter 37 ezekiel 37. Um, if you can find the large prophecy of isaiah then you have jeremiah and then a shorter prophecy of lamentations and then ezekiel Uh, Ezekiel, if you read it, is a very graphic book. There's a lot of visual uh, illustrations that he gives here. And so, in this passage we're going to read today, um, he's talking about the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. And here's what he says in Ezekiel 37, beginning in verse 1 The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. The passage goes on to tell about how Ezekiel starts to prophesy over these dead, dry bones, and bone comes to bone, and then the ligaments and the tendons come over them, and then the skin comes over them, and they stand up, but they're still not alive. And so God says, "Prophesy again." And he prophesies again, and the breath of God comes in to them, and they are alive these dry bones are indicating that the death occurred a long time ago and that there was no possibility of coming alive again but that is again before the god of the impossible stepped in as ezekiel prophesied they came together The Lord told the prophet that the bones represented the spiritual condition of the people of Israel. In verse 11, Israel, knowing their desperate spiritual condition, cry out, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off, cut off from God, separated from God. They knew that they were dead spiritually. But in verse 12, God says, behold, I will open Your graves and raise you from your graves, and in verse fourteen he says, "And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. You shall live." I believe that the old, uh, the New Testament equivalent of this passage in Ezekiel is found in John chapter eleven. You don't have to turn there. Uh, I'm just going to explain the story to you. I'm not going to read anything there, but the story that many of us are familiar with is that Jesus had this very good friend named Lazarus uh, and someone runs to him one day and says your good friend Lazarus is to the point of death and the implication is come quickly before he dies so that you can heal him and the text says specifically that Jesus delayed he waited he waited until Lazarus died And then he waited until Lazarus had been dead for four days. So that it was certain that he was dead. And Jesus did this intentionally. And then he finally goes up to where he is. And he's met by people and they're crying and there's mourning. And one of, uh, uh, come up to him and say, hey, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And so Jesus goes to the tomb. And Jesus gives two outrageous commands at this tomb of Lazarus. The first is he says this where is he in there roll the stone away and they're thinking that is not a good idea right it's not a good idea Uh, martha having some idea of the decaying process says by this time there's going to be a stench we can't open this tomb but they obey and they open the tomb and then jesus gives the most outrageous command he looks at a dead man and he says come here come out And you're just thinking, the people around are just probably thinking like, doesn't he know that a dead person cannot respond? They have no ability to respond. And the answer is sure he does. But he also knows that he possesses resurrection power. I love what he said earlier when it's just like, my brother is dead. And Jesus is like, he will live again. It's like, I know he'll live again in the resurrection of the just. And Jesus says, I am. I am. resurrection and the life jesus possessed resurrection power and this dead man could only respond he only had the ability to respond because jesus gave him life before the gift of life there was no ability to respond this was a monumental event an impossible event for anyone but god but God. This leads us back to Ephesians chapter two. According to verses one through three, as we said before, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Because of that, we had really pledged loyalty uh, to the evil system of this world and to the what the Bible calls the God of this world, Satan himself. The result is that we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We were objects of God's wrath. God's wrath is a serious, severe thing, and it is forever. It never ends. The Bible describes it as a lake of fire. The Bible describes it as outer darkness. The Bible describes it as the absence of God's loving presence. It is hell. That is what it means to be an object of God's wrath. That was our spiritual condition. Until we got our act together, right? Until we, we woke up to what was right. Correct? No. Once again, as I mentioned before, we were dead. A dead person cannot respond at all. They cannot respond. Someone had to step in. Someone with supernatural power. Someone with resurrection power. And that's exactly what we see in verse four. And these are two of my favorite words in all of scripture. After you read the horrible condition in which we were in, we were dead spiritually. We were following the course of this world. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were following our own sinful uh, passions with no hope. Verse four begins with, but God. But God. In this church, we talk a lot about the wrath of God. If you were to look in the Old Testament, you would see God wiping out the entire world with a flood because of their sin. You would see God burning two cities to the ground because of their sin. You would see God wiping out entire nations because of their sin. You would see God even bringing other nations upon his people to punish them for their sin. Why? Why is God so angry? Why do we see this wrath And the reason is, is because God is a holy God and he is a just God and he cannot stand sin. And a just God realizes that justice demands that sin be punished. Why? Because sin is serious. We've talked about this many times before. You and I live in sin every day. It's not that big of a deal to us. We sin every day. We become used to it. It's it's who we are. But sin is serious because sin brings death. It brings separation from God. And so because it's so serious, God must deal with it in a very serious way. And he does. But what we also see through both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that even though this God is the one that we have rebelled against, he is the one who is constantly reaching out to us. He is the one who is constantly reaching out to, uh, th- to sinners, providing a way for them to be reconciled to him, to be brought back into relationship with him. He is the one who initiates these relationships. It's God who initiated making a covenant with Abraham. Abraham was a pagan, not seeking God. He was doing his own thing. And God said, hey, he reached out to Abraham. God is the one who, who raised up Moses later on. God is the one who initiated him as being the one who would deliver his people out of the cruel bondage to the Egyptians. And it's God who in the fullness of time sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us who had severely broken his law. We deserved to be punished. And this is my firm belief. My firm belief is this, that whoever ends up in eternal separation from God and what the Bible calls hell, I don't believe that any of them will ever protest and say, this isn't fair. I believe that they at that, fi- at that time will finally realize just how holy God is and just how sinful they were. And they will say, this is justice. They won't like it, but they will say that this is justice. God has done me no wrong whatsoever. We all deserve God's wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. When we were dead and hopeless, that's when God stepped in and made us alive together with Christ. Once again, when I was studying this past week, that phrase together with Christ, we could spend months on that because it's, it's, it's so, it's got so much beauty and so much importance in there. We talked about that in the past. We can't go into it right now, but there's several things I wanna look at in this passage today. Uh, and I wanna begin with what God has done for us, what God has done for us, because it's absolutely astounding. And what we see is that it reverses all of the effects of sin what God has done for us reverses all of the effects of sins. Let me show you, uh, show you what I mean by that. According to verse one, we were spiritually dead. But according to verse four, He made us spiritually alive. So the death was reversed to life. According to verse two, we were following the course of this world, having a earthly mindset. And according to verse 6, he raised us up into the heavenlies, right? So earthly to heavenly. He reversed that. According to verse 2, we were slaves of Satan. According to verse 6, we now reign with Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. According to verse 3, we hopelessly followed the desires of the flesh. According to verse 6, we were raised up. Well, how does that correspond? Well, implied in being raised up with Christ is that we have died to the sinful passions that we once followed. Let me show you what I mean by that. I'm going to ask you to turn to Colossians chapter 2. So if you are in Ephesians, you have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And here's what Paul says, just keeping in mind, like being raised up uh, with Christ means that the old has been done away with. Those old pass- passions and evil desires that we had. Here's what he says, Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh. Okay, that's those fleshly desires. By the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of god who raised him from the dead so we were raised to a new life now i'm going to ask you to turn one chapter over to colossians chapter three colossians chapter three beginning in verse one because we see the same terminology here it says this in verse one if then you have been raised with christ Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are in the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. So what we see from these verses, verses 1 through 4, is that we have a new heavenly perspective. We have a new heavenly focus. Uh, We're more concerned now about pleasing God than gratifying the desires of the flesh. Why? Because we've been raised up with Christ. We have died to sin. Paul goes on to talk about our old desires in verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3. Those fleshly uh, desires, he says this, "...put to death therefore... What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. This is how you were. Now you have a new perspective. You have a new focus. So we see that God has reversed all of the effects of sin in our lives by raising us up. And as a result... What he has done is he has taken us from a position of wrath into a position of love. Him fighting against us to him embracing us in love. And this all takes us back to what it means to be united to Christ, to be united with Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, everything that Jesus accomplished, we accomplished because we're in him. Okay. Every victory that he ever experienced, we experienced. Uh, Where he goes, we go. Where he ends up, we end up because we are in Christ. We are perfect because Jesus is perfect. Now you're thinking, no, 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 no. You don't know what my life is like. Now I know, I get it. I still sin. I am far from perfect, practically speaking, But in God's eyes, because of what Jesus has done, and because I'm in Jesus, when God looks at me, he sees Jesus' perfect righteousness, and he says, you are perfect. You're perfect. It's because of what Christ has done for me, not me. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is resident in us. It lives in us. It dwells in us. Looking at what God has done for us, all the reversing of of the effects of sin, the question is, why? 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 Why in the world would he do this for us? Why would, would God do this? Because this is monumental. I hope you understand that. This isn't like, you know, when, you, when you're driving down the road, right, and you come to a cross section, and you see someone holding a sign that says hungry, and you you know, in a spirit of charity, you give them like $5, or you give them a granola bar or something like that, and, and, and it's like, oh, I've done my duty. No, this isn't something like that. This is God completely transforming us. This is God redeeming us at the cost of the life of his son, okay? This is not a small thing that he's doing. He is paying the ultimate price for us. And so the question again is why would he do this for a people who are a spiritually rotting corpse? Why would he do that? For a people who are following the evil system of this world? And the, and, the, and the God of this world behind that, Satan, why would he do all of these things for a people who are following their own lusts and saying, that's what I want, and I'm going to go after it? Well, verse 4 tells us. In fact, before Paul uh, tells us what God has done, he tells us God's motivation for doing it. Let's read this again. Verse 4 says this, But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. Why did God do this? What was his motivation? It was because of the great love with which he loved us. That's what motivated him to reach out to us, to make us alive and to welcome us into his family because of his great love for us. He looked at us in our hopeless spiritual condition and he didn't despise us. He wasn't grossed out by us. He had Mercy on us. He had compassion on us. I want to ask you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 16. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. Um, We saw earlier the graphic terms that uh, the prophet used to describe Israel's former condition. Uh, He does the same thing again here, um, talking about uh, their, if you will, their conversion to God and what God did um, for them. It says this in Ezekiel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1 Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt or wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open fields for you are abhorred on the day that you were born. That's a pretty bad condition, right? You come out and then they just throw you out into the street. Cord's not cut, you're not washed, you're not wrapped up. You're discarded. No one loves you. So what's God's response? Well, we find it in verse 6. It says this, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. The Lord saw their horrible spiritual condition. And what did he do? He didn't just pass by. He stepped in. He gave them life. And not only did he give them life, he caused them to flourish. To flourish. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5, verse 8. Romans 5, verse 8. I love this verse because there uh, Paul succinctly mentions our former condition and then our current condition and what God has done uh, for us. Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And you've heard me say it many times before. It wasn't, you know, and God saw that we were starting to get our act together, right? That, hey, they're getting a little bit closer to me. Therefore go and die for them no it was while we were still sinners while we were in still in outright rebellion against God while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins that's when God sent his son to die for us and then the most famous verse in all of the bible right john 3:16 for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish eternally right in hell, but would have eternal life. That's what God did. It was God's steadfast love that motivated him to save dead sinners from certain eternal punishment. And my question to us is, have we thought about this lately? Do we dwell on this? Because once again, we hear these things over and over again. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, God did this for me. No, 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 God did this for you. This, your former condition. Was hopeless. Do we think about this? Have you pondered where you were and what God has done for you? Have you therefore asked, what should my response be now? Like, this is what you've done for me? What should my response be? What, this great act of love, what kind of response is it calling for me? Now, I know here at GBC, we talk a lot about sin. Uh, There's not a worship service that goes by where we are not talking about sin. And the reason is, is because the greater our realization of sin is, the greater our understanding of the mercy and love of God will be, right? The more you realize where you have come from, the more you realize how great God's love is for you. The more you realize how utterly disgusting and sinful you were, the greater you're just like, God, this is amazing that you have done this for me. When you truly understand who you were and the radical steps that God took to transform you into a man or a woman fit for his presence, it produces in you a greater love for God, a greater gratitude for what God has done, and a greater surrender of your entire life to him. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 7. I think Jesus illustrates this beautifully in this story. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 47 uh, in this passage, Jesus has an encounter with two people who are on opposite ends of the spectrum. He is meeting with a Pharisee who is a self-righteous person uh, who is devoted their entire lives to obeying the law of God uh, as they see it interpreted. And he also encounters a, a woman who is called a sinner, uh, which usually means that she is a sexually promiscuous woman, maybe even a prostitute here. Okay? And so... Here's what it says Luke 7:36 One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table And behold a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet weeping she began to wet his feet with her tears And wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now the Pharisee who had invited him in saw this. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said, and I love that because he didn't say this out loud, right? He was thinking it. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled a larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said, To Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. This woman, you got to think about this woman. She is a sinner. She is a vile sinner, right? And she comes into the house of a Pharisee who would just condemn her, right? He's condemning her in his mind. But she doesn't care because who's in this house? Jesus is in this house. And she knows that with Jesus, she will receive mercy, this woman knew the depths of her sin, but she also knew the depths of the love of God. And it was reflected in her response where she bows down before him and she's, she's crying and she's washing his feet with her tears. She's anointing his feet with, with, with an expensive ointment. Her response was the proper response. Tim Keller, a pastor in. Manhattan, New York, of Redeemer Presbyterian Church, um, describes a meeting uh, meeting a woman in uh, his church uh, one day who joined his church. She it was a woman who had grew, grown up in the church, and then it just she was taken to church as a child, and then just kind of uh, when she came back, it was almost like uh, her idea was that you earn your way to God. That, that through your good works, then you are pleasing to God and God accepts you based on your good works. You're better than this person or, or whatever. Um, but then at his church, a Redeemer, she encountered the gospel for the first time and it changed everything. And he said that it was interesting because initially the gospel was more scary for her. Um, you know, it brings peace. But she said there was a there was a it, it was more scary for her, and it it prompted Tim Keller to ask her, "Well, why is that?" And here's what she said. She said this quote: "If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty, and now I would deserve certain a certain quality of life. But if I am a sinner," saved by sheer grace then there's nothing he cannot ask of me end quote there's nothing he can't ask of me keller makes a crucial observation here and he says this quote she understood the dynamic of the grace of grace and gratitude if when you have lost all fear of punishment you lose all incentive to live a good unselfish life then the only incentive you ever had to live a decent life was fear. This woman could see immediately that the wonderful beyond belief teaching of salvation by sheer grace had an edge to it. She knew that she was a sinner saved by grace. She was, if anything, more subject to the sovereign lordship of God. She knew that if Jesus really had done all this for her, she would not be her own. She would joyfully, gratefully, Belong to Jesus, who provided all this for her at infinite cost to himself. End quote. Do you get what he's saying? What he's saying is this if you truly understand the love of God displayed in his amazing grace, it would never lead you to say something like this sweet, by simply believing in Jesus, I'm no longer under the wrath of God. God is off my back, therefore I can live. The way that I want to. I can do whatever I want to. God is off my back now. No, the opposite is true. We would say this, I would have nothing and would be nothing without him. Therefore, I will give him everything. I will give him everything. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 19 and 20. This is a, a very important passage regarding this. I want you to see this for yourself. Paul here talking about the seriousness of sin in the lives of the Corinthian people and us also reminds them of a very important reality. And here's what he says. He says this, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in you your body you don't own yourself anymore paul in romans chapter 12 after spending 11 chapters he spends 11 chapters talking about here's the disgusting place that you are in here is what god has done for you and what god continues to do for you and then he finally gets to chapter 12 and he says this i appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What Paul is saying is this, your hands are no longer yours to do with what you want. Your eyes are no longer yours to look at what you want to. Your ears are no longer yours to listen to what you want to. Your feet are no longer yours to go where you want to. You have been bought with a price, yield up all of these members your eyes, your ears, your mouth, everything for to Christ, and say, "I relinquish control of these things to you. You purchase them with your very own blood. The only proper response to this amazing act of God towards us is total surrender to God. But there's one more thing I wanna point out before we close, and that's this. You and I are not the focus of this passage. You and I are not the focus of this passage. God is. In fact, God is the focus of every single passage. It is all about God. Our main objective here on earth is not to maximize our happiness, but it is to glorify God. That's why we're here. Incidentally, the more that you glorify God, the more that you do maximize your uh, happiness here on earth because you know that God is with you through it all, that God has called you into his family and that God will reward you beyond measure one day. We see this intended purpose of God in Ephesians 2 verse 7, when it says this, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What it's saying is this, is that God is putting his grace on display. God is putting himself on display so that people will say, this was what your condition was? That's impossible. How are you alive? Well, let me talk to you about the God who made me alive because it's all about him. It's all about looking to him and saying, wow, this is what he did? What kind of God could possibly do that? And we say, it's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ who did that. And why in the world would he pay such a heavy price for disgusting dead sinners? And the answer is because of his great love for us, his mercy, his compassion for us. And I believe that anyone truly understanding this, I mean truly understanding this, would have to say, I want to know that God. I want to know that God who has the power to do this and the love to do this. I want to know that God. And so my question is, is that our response today? Is that your response today? Do you want to know him more? Do you want to know God better? Do you want to know Jesus better? Paul, who probably knew uh, Jesus better than anyone, he cries out in Philippians 3.10 that I may know him i know him but i want to know him more i want to learn more about him i want to be with him more i want to know him are you content with your current relationship with jesus or do you want to go deeper with him to know him more are you content with how much of your life you've yielded to jesus or do you want to yield more hey jesus i've been holding this back i don't want to do that anymore i want to give you this part of my life as well i hope that you do that Also, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ, then the truth of the matter is, and we don't like to pull punches, is that you are still an object of God's wrath. You're still an object of God's wrath. You are still spiritually dead. And you'll be punished for your sins one day. And here's what I want to say. If you are starting to feel a pull towards God, if you're starting to say, whoa, this makes sense to me, this, this, this Jesus is becoming more real and more beautiful to me, then that's an indication that God is taking you from death into life. That God is the one who is waking you up spiritually. That God is seeing you in, wallowing in your blood and saying to you, live, live. And you are made alive when you put your faith in Jesus. Ephesians 2.8, we'll get to this next week, says this, for by grace you have been saved through Faith, through faith. Faith is believing that Jesus is who he says he is and believing that Jesus did what he said he would do. Namely, that Jesus lived the life, the perfect life that you and I were required to live but could not live. And that Jesus then, after living that perfect life on behalf of us, went to a cross and was punished for every sin that you and I ever committed or will ever commit. It's believing that and saying, Jesus, I believe that you did that for me. When you do that, you become united with Christ, meaning that you are raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. You are a child of God with full inheritance rights. If you haven't done this already, I am pleading with you, Don't leave this place without doing that. Come talk to me. Uh, Seriously, I will drop every other conversation and, and talk to you because it's that important. Or find someone that you know, maybe someone invited you and say, hey, what was he talking about? Tell me, what can I do? What can I do to become a member of the family of God? If you are here today and you have become alive in God, praise him, right? Praise him. <laughs> Look at what he's where you were and where he's brought you. And just say, thank you, God, for all that you've done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that when we were dead, you made us alive together with Christ. That you raised us up, that you seated us with him in the heavenly places to display your immeasurable grace we thank you for that. And I do pray, God, if there's anyone here who does not know you, Holy Spirit, please, please make them alive. Open their hearts to see these truths, to embrace these truths, to embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And I pray that you would do this for your glory and the good of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.